Piecing together what the area around my sit spot is and what it used to be was a lot like putting together a puzzle that was missing a few pieces. I picked up a few pieces from conversations with my internship mentor Alex, some from eavesdropping on a group of kids walking by, other pieces were revealed in conversations with residents of neighboring streets, and some of them, of course, were found on the all-knowing internet. When I finally put all of those pieces together, I was able to get a much clearer picture of Calcara Quarry, and come to a few conclusions about nature too. More specifically, what makes the space natural, and why should we care? When I sit at my sit spot above the quarry, the soundscape that surrounds me is serene. I can hear birdsong from the red-winged blackbirds, the rustling of small brown chippy birds, the calming, at least me, drone of planes in the background, the occasional car passing by on Coolidge Drive, and the distant laughter of neighborhood kids during their Nerf gun wars. But it didn't always used to be like this. In the late 1800s, at the height of the quarry's production, the soundscape was vastly different. I imagine it was filled with the hustle and bustle of quarry workers going about their workday, and the explosive sound of dynamite followed by the crumbling and crunching of rocks on blast days. Calcar Quarry was mainly a marble quarry, where the extracted rock was later processed to make terrasso, which is used to make beautiful countertops containing a mixture of marble, granite, glass, and other materials. It was also used to make less fancy items like chicken grit, roofing grit, and mortar sand. But the most common product made from the minerals extracted here were poultry and cattle feed. Here's where things get interesting, at least to me. Marble wasn't the only material extracted from this site. Calcar Quarry is reported to have produced 76 minerals and crystals. Some of them were common crystals like amethyst, and others were very rare specimens. The kinds of crystals with really long and complex names that you would spend way too much money on at a rocks and minerals store. It has been about 51 years since its permanent closure and has changed a lot from those old pictures that I found in my research. I wondered about the evolution of this space and if there was any restoration after it was shut down. So I actually decided to call up my grandpa, who used to operate a rock quarry in my hometown, and pick his brain since he is still going through the restoration process himself. Hi, how are you? Good. Well, um, I wanted to interview you about your rock quarry. So yeah, I just have a couple questions for you. If you could just start by introducing yourself, um, like with your name and um, what kind of quarry you were operating. So I'm the quarry operator and I've been in the quarry business for 25 years, 30 years. I remember going out there a lot with you as in like sometimes with my dad as a kid um, and you had already had it for like a few years. So what, what would you say is like the lifespan of that quarry specifically? Like how many years did it operate? It operated probably 60 years. And 60 so, years. There was, there was another operator before me, Watkins uh-huh. Sand and Gravel. Okay, and so I remember a few years ago, or maybe it was last year, I don't remember quite when it was, but I came out and helped you plant trees, um, Right. you were currently working on um, restoring the quarry? Right, we were, 
starting to put it to bed. You know, we were done, you know, taking rock out. So our use permit, we had to uh, follow our plan to put it back to sleep. Yeah. So, Plant trees and... Yeah. So what else... Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you got like a like a letter in the mail or something or like a phone call. Like what kind of like instructions I guess come with like rock quarry restoration? Oh, I got a whole book. Really? A hundred pages. Whoa. Oh, uh, at least a hundred pages. Yeah. So, so what do you have to do other than planting trees? I gotta uh, have to take care of the water. I had to terrace it. I had to terrace the terrace the quarry because I took so much rock out. I had to terrace it two to one the slope. Mm-hmm. They had to be ten foot the benches, ten feet wide, and I had to put a foot of topsoil on those benches so the trees would grow. Gotcha. And so, is that like little um, like at the bottom of the quarry? Has it already filled up with water, or, like, will it fill up with water eventually? Oh, no. Hmm. No, you can't have any water. Oh, you can't have water. No, you can't have water. That's interesting. Right. No, at all, I had to I had to make uh, drainage. That was one of the main things is drainage. Okay. And I had to drain it into, into uh, a blue, they call it a blue line stream that comes off the hillside. The fish don't go up it, but it's a lot of water, you know, in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So I had to drain drain the water where it wouldn't erode. Uh, oh, there was, and I had to, you know, throw straw over the whole quarry. Okay. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, Did you and I had to, to monitor for three years. Three years after, after I was done hauling rock out of it, then I had to make sure the trees grew and there was no uh, erosion happening and there was a lot, lot after, even after I closed. I'm still doing it, still. So how long do they say it should take before it's, you know, like uh, returned to the way it was before it was a quarry? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take... It's going to take uh, 30, 40 years. Okay. And so... Before, yeah, it'll take it'll take 30, 30 years. I mean, this, nature's going to... The trees will come back. Nature was... The ones... You know the trees we planted? Yeah. They died. None of them... They're not going to grow. Yeah. And ask nature... <laughs> There's a few of them that did. I, I walked around there. There's some redwoods that they don't look very good, you know, <laughs> pretty scrawny. But Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I think I asked you all the questions that I wanted to ask. Oh, I got a hundred more. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add? <laughs> uh, yeah, when are you going to come and help me plant some more trees? Because... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess it'll have to be next time that I come up to Fort Bragg. Hopefully okay. soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for answering my questions. Okay. All right, have a good night. Love you. Bye. All right, good night.
apparently there's a lot that goes into rock quarry restoration. As I asked my grandpa these questions and listened to his answers, I kept thinking about Calcar Quarry. And I think it's safe to say that there was no restoration work done to this site after it was shut down. At least not by humans. There was no terracing like my grandpa talked about, because as far as I can tell, the cliff is still pretty much straight up and down. And there is still a pond at the bottom of the quarry, so there was obviously no drainage after the closure of the quarry. This idea of returning the quarry back to nature took a bit of a more, I guess you could say, natural route. Calcar Quarry did not transform overnight, though. This space has undergone a very slow process of succession. What began as a very barren, open landscape with few trees is now a lush green space that attracts insects, birds, small animals, and, of course, people. I wanted to know more about some of the present uses of this so-called natural space. So I thought, what better way to gain insight on this than to talk directly to someone who lives here? I was lucky enough to get in contact, well, virtual contact, <laughs> through a Zoom call, with a new resident to Quarry Lane, which is located right next to the pond at Calcar Quarry. And I had the coolest and arguably the longest <laughs> conversation with him about his connection to the pond here as well as some of the fascinating history of this area. Hey, Madison. Hi. Do you go by Madison or Maddie? You can call me Maddie. Okay. Hi, Maddie. I'm Ron. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for making time. Oh, my pleasure. Talk with me. I love talking about the quarry, so... <clears throat> yeah, I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. Um, I guess you could just start by introducing yourself. Um, like, who are you? What's your story? So I'm Ron Goodman, and I live at the end of Quarry Lane, right on the pond in the quarry. I started coming to this quarry when my older daughter was in preschool, and there's a picnic bench area off on the right side of the quarry, and we would come after preschool to eat snacks at the table, and I would look down into the pond and at the houses and just imagine what an amazing place to live and never thought I would actually live here, but um, it was pretty cool. I'd see little kids in boats, uh, pad you know, paddling around the, the pond. and um, yeah. But I knew nothing about the history of the place. I knew nothing about you know, other than that there was this random pond in the middle of of nowhere that uh, very few people in Santa Cruz seem to know about. Yeah. Um, and then about five months ago, I randomly saw that there was this house for sale here. And I've, since I always wanted to live here, I immediately jumped and tried to, to move here, which I did. And I moved my family here. Um, and we moved in about four months ago. And it's pretty amazing like when you're here pretty quickly I could feel that there was a ton of history in this place mm -hmm. both the geological history just looking up at the rocks seeing how every day little boulders are falling new rock is being revealed um, it's a very live quarry in the sense that uh, because things are always moving and growing it's changing rapidly and I was super curious to know 
more about it and met one of the people who's lived here for a long time. And he gave me a copy of a book that was written by a local historian, Dean Silvers, which is all about this area. And I just swallowed it up, read, read everything and talked about how, you know, there was a distillery here in the early 1900s, or there was a, you know, the first part of the mining operation in the late 1800s. I was wandering out onto the land every day and seeing things that to me looked like remnants of what I had just been reading about. And that kind of blew my mind. Like, the you know, it's just neat to have that connection and feel like, oh, I'm connecting on some level to the people who were here hundreds, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Um, and I've never been a particularly history-oriented person, but but having the place that I live in be um, so full of history has changed that. Um, and there's just a lot going on here. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a pretty unique, natural, you know, semi-wild space in the middle of uh, the city, you know, where, where the rest of, you know, uh, a minute away is, is High Street and a couple minutes away is downtown. Um, that's just kind of wild. And at the same time, a lot of the natural area that's here is pretty unnatural. Um, I mean, the the whole idea of a quarry is you had this area of land and then for a hundred years, people were setting off dynamite every day, blasting blasting it apart and what we see now it's fun to try to imagine backwards to rewind time and look at it and think oh that that cliff edge i think that's right where your sit spot is yeah mm -hmm. um that cliff edge didn't used to be a cliff edge it used yeah. to be used to be you know a gradual rock mountain down to the other side and what what's natural that's something i obviously spend a lot of time thinking about because of you know what i talked about earlier just that this is a really natural feeling place but it is totally modified by people yeah. and um not natural in some definitions and very natural in some other definitions yeah. and the pond this is like the i think the third iteration of the pond after the mining stopped um they allowed the pond to form again and so now there's this new pond and if you've seen the pond you know right now it's full of tule yeah. and some people say well is the tule natural i mean is it a native species and it's like well how do you even talk about a native species growing in a pond that's only existed for 50 years yeah. um so so this is interesting mix of it so super neat area with lots of nature happening that was totally created by um, the super destructive, I will dominate the land type attitude of the 18 and 1900s. Um, that's kind of an overview of, of what it's been like being here for the past few months. I'm just diving in and, uh, you know, waking up in the morning and hearing that the quiet and yeah sitting around listening and just just like i'm sure you get sitting you know in your sit spot it's just really nice to 
connect with with this area yeah so so as you know my sit spot's kind of up above on that cliff overlooking the whole area um and i kind of had the same experience where when i first found that spot i didn't know what it was at all either and i was like oh a pond um and like you said it's kind of dry like it looked from above i was like is there even water in it right. um and I ended up like kind of walking down and exploring a little bit. Um, and honestly, in my head right now, I'm wondering, like, you just said you were in the pond, like you were diving. <laughs> not like, diving, not diving. No, <laughs> that would be really bad. It's a pretty mucky pond. Yeah. So tell me about what do you do in the pond? Yeah. Yeah. So 10 years ago, the groundskeeper for this area who's been the groundskeeper for 25 plus years. Um, he was in, he had been clearing, well, sorry to go back even further. Somebody got the idea to introduce the tule and they mm-hmm. brought the tule to the pond and planted it. And, and tule is a, can be a pretty invasive species. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, the groundskeeper, his name is Amador up until 10 years ago, every year, he would go through the pond and, and clear it back. So he would pull out Thule to keep it just in like sort of the section of the pond that's over by the quarry wall. But 10 years ago, he injured his back. And so he stopped doing it. And nobody took it over. And after seven or eight years, it had completely enveloped the pond. Because the Thule pretty much choked the pond out, uh, all the large fish are gone and the water birds are gone and the small fish are still there. There's still crawdads in the pond, but anything, you know, larger than a couple inches can't really be in the water because the water is densely packed with the roots of Thule. So when I, when I actually arrived and looked off my deck and saw this Thule and no open water and then found out that nobody was going to be, clearing it out, I got to work. Um, <laughs> so um, I spend hours in the pond clearing out Thule. Um, at first, I just cleared out an area that was probably five feet by five feet. Um, and when it was about 10 feet by 10 feet, uh, a couple of deer came by and started using it as a watering hole. And then a great blue heron started visiting, and every day it would spend an hour or two in the water hunting little fish. Um, amazing! It's totally amazing, and to feel like whoa, I just created a little <laughs> a little ecosystem. Yeah. Life is, you know, it'll it'll go for whatever's there, so yeah. it'll find a way. And uh, so, um, but I've been now been working on it for months and I have a path in the water, a channel that goes for about a hundred feet now. I recently added a, a little bubbler to it just so that there'd be at least a little section that's that's more aerated. So and I and as I mentioned I was in the pond today. Uh my my neighbor has a uh, well just, just recently turned six year old who calls me uh, the swamp monster oh my um, 
Because when I come out, you know, I'm sometimes a little muddy and yeah. you know, got the crazy gear on to be in the water. Um, I love it, so I'm. That's what I do every day. That sounds fine, honestly. It's so awesome just being in the water there. Um, you know, usually I'll each session I'll stay in there for about you know about three hours. It's just really neat. To spend three hours standing in a pond with truly all around you and you can't see people or, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just a, a fun way to connect with, with the pond. You know what? I have so much respect. You are single-handedly like, <laughs> saving this pond. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> That's so amazing. It's just such an amazing, beautiful space. And, you know, I just, yeah, I mean, it's so much fun for me. Uh, I love water. I mean, and here I have this pond, and it's it's such a rare thing in Santa Cruz, even in California, to have a lake or a pond, like in a town. So, like, feels like especially important that somebody care for it because I don't think we can afford to take a pond for granted. Awesome. Um, good to chat with you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Have sure. a good rest of your night. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. All right, bye. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that this pond and the ecosystem that lives in and around it is so lucky that Ron moved in and decided to take on his one-man pond restoration project. It's truly inspiring. I think that we always need more people out in the world with the heart and the drive to go out of their way to better the natural world around them. So, we know that Ron really enjoys living here and learning from Calcar Quarry, but who else uses this space, and what do they do here? We call the group of kids that I mentioned before, the ones that I overheard talking about the pond here. It turns out that they weren't just neighborhood kids passing by. They are actually part of a children's outdoor education group called Kids in Nature. I was able to get in touch with the director of this organization and hear all about her naturalist perspectives on the importance of nature, human relationship, allyship, and how all of these things intersect with the relationship between the young students of the Kids in Nature group and Calcar Quarry. My name is Kate and I am the director of Santa Cruz Kids in Nature, which is a small outdoor program specifically for public school kids in Santa Cruz, California. Um, we like to focus on educating the kids about local cultural and natural history, as well as um, contemporary uh, activism, stewardship and allyship. And we go on little um, hikes around the area and learn about um, all of the changes that have happened on the land and how we could play a role in protecting them and keeping them vibrant and healthy, as well as advocating for the original peoples of this land, as well as um, subjugated groups that are living here currently. And um, those are just some of the aims of our program. One of the places that we visit is Calcar Quarry. It's very close to the elementary school that we work with, which is Westlake Elementary School. 
And we love going there. The kids call it um, Crystal Pond. And there's like all of these magical little rocks you can find. There's this really cool um, little beetle that has its mating grounds there. There is Thule and Cattail and Red-winged Blackbirds. There's a Great Horned Owl resident that flies around during the day. There's even some red-shouldered hawks that will drop their, their feathers and call out when we're there. But one thing that I love so much about it is that it is such an incredible place to teach so many of the things we aim to teach the children because it's a place of historical, cultural, and um, natural significance. As regards to your question, how has turning to nature been beneficial to you and the kids in the program during the pandemic? Um, I think that nature has been Nature has always been an important relationship in my life, but I think the core thing here about how kids relate to nature during the pandemic is that it's a place to practice relationship and a time when I think all of us are lacking relationship and lacking movement and diversity. And I think that nature is, an, <laughs> by definition, an unpredictable place. I mean, I think when things become predictable that's when they're domesticated and so when we still consider a place wild or um, natural it's that there is an element of agency beyond um, human control and I think that that is vital to our well-being is like being in places that um, are not entirely in human control um, <laughs> um I think being in connection with something greater than oneself, especially when the lens has been so incredibly turned inwards, um, is very is very valuable and very healthy. And I think that I think that challenging oneself and opening oneself up to curiosity and to unpredictability is is just very healthy and vital. Um, connection to nature and moving our bodies and learning histories and taking action and participating in the community is important all the time and made that much more important in a time of crisis, um, which arguably, or kind of inarguably we're in right now. Um, and some of that crisis is, is not necessarily bettering our world. Like the, um, pandemic isn't necessarily directly bringing us to a greater place, but I think some of the crisis around, um, recognizing genocide, recognizing, uh, institutional inequality. I think that those are, those are crises that are moving us forward. And I think that being here for this moment of, of listening and acting as an ally and educating people about, um, about these histories so that we can move forward together beautifully is critically important work and working with youth and shaping the way that the youth are in the world and understand the world that they're in is my calling and also just what I'm what I'm drawn to as as my activism and um each day that I see a kid uh develop a softness towards the tree who was milled for the making of the table is a day where I feel like um, 
I'm contributing to a softening of our future and in a, hopefully in a most beautiful way. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts on kids in nature and on Calcar Quarry. I would just like to say that I think that it is so um, crucial to connect with young children in this way that Kate describes. These are the people who will eventually grow up and be part of our future society and hopefully bring positive change to the world. It's so awesome to me that Calcar Quarry plays a part in that. So thank you, Kate, for what you do and thank you for sharing your thoughts. I would like to bring this podcast to a close by saying that there's always more to nature than what meets the eye, and Calcar Quarry is a great example of that. This piece of land has been so many different things in the past few centuries, and whether it is a live quarry that supplies marble for countertops or a place to build neighborhoods, whether it is a place of respite and relaxation or even a child's classroom, it never ceases to hold value. What I'm getting at here is that nature is going to be increasingly hard to come by as, you know, time goes on. So in whatever form that we can find it, um, I think that it is worth appreciating and understanding. And above all, it's um, worth protecting. So as long as you're willing and able, um, get outside and learn about the natural places that surround you. It's not always easy at first to just glance at a space and know everything, but with some time and determination and curiosity, um, it's not impossible, and it's so rewarding once you finally fit all of the pieces of the puzzle together.